1: streaming, and 3CR digital, podcast, or audio on demand. And of course, the website, SolidarityBreakfast.org.au.
2: Solidarity forever!
1: Good morning, everybody. Yes,
0: good morning.
3: Yes, I really enjoyed that Stick Together program you put together. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it did a good job. It was a really good rally. It was a good yeah. rally. It really was. And uh, I love the way... Uh, People workers were able to say it quite clearly, change the government, change the rules. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. needed no prompting. No. Yeah.
0: And it was really evident in their stories that it wasn't just like a, a party line or like a you know, a slogan or whatever. They really like <laughs> Like they're really feeling it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah.
3: It's just gone yeah. downhill. Yeah. And it cut and they're not seeing any uh any um Return to a uh, sanity. It's mm. it's just becoming too tough. Yeah. Um, and uh, we enter on the program with uh, a community announcement about the Marxist conference, which we've been going to.
0: Yes, we yeah. were there yesterday. You yeah, were there. Some things. That's yeah. right.
3: And we're going to kick off the program with. I went to the last plenary session, which was all about. Uh, Fighting the far right and uh, fighting the far right in Britain, Germany, the USA and Australia, mm. and uh, Vasti Kenway, uh, an Australian uh, left alternative uh, person as well as uh, member uh, uh, anti fascist fighter as it were, she stood up and gave i I think possibly the best speech of the day. It was mm. the last speech, yeah, and so we're going to share it with you today. And uh, encourage you, perhaps, if you've got a bit of time to this, you know, the uh, Marxism conference goes Saturday and Sunday. You can yeah. buy a ten dollar ticket, and it is just uh, yeah, the most
0: a r- really a lot of interesting, like really educational interesting. stuff, but also yeah, analysis and conversation. So yeah,
3: yeah. lots of people. Yeah. Everyone was very cheerful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's kick off. Okay.
4: All right, well, uh, tonight I really want to start with the events of Christchurch because news cycles come and go, and what was once at the forefront of many people's minds just a few weeks ago, I think, has really uh, hit the back um, burner. But I think it's really important for us to remember that it was just over a month ago that New Zealand was witnessed to the largest massacre of Muslims in the West in over half a century. The dead included newlyweds Abdul Nazar and his wife, Ansi. They'd both just moved to New Zealand from Kerala last year just to start a new life together. And while he was waiting to have his enrolment confirmed at university, he was working at a local supermarket stacking shelves. It's the story of thousands of thousands of people across the world, across Australia. Probably many of us here have similar sorts of stories. Uh, His wife was searching for work and finding it really hard. And the last Abdul saw of his wife was after the chaos of the first gunshots. The last glimpse of her uh, was of her body lying face down in a pool of blood. The dead also included the three year old Muqad Ibrahim, who was sitting with his father and older brother when the gunmen stormed the mosque. And as people fled the bullets, the tiny boy became separated from his family. Uh, and he was, again, um, murdered. Mukhad was, according to his brother, a joyful, energetic child who always seemed to be laughing. The dead also included Haj Na- uh, Daoud Nabi, who was 71, and moved his family to New Zealand in 1979 to escape the Soviet-Afghan war, Mr Nabi uh, ran an (laughs) Afghan refugee association and tried to help many refugees settle in New Zealand um, when they had arrived there. And his son Omar said that he used to make them feel really at home. The last words that anyone heard Nabi say um, were the words, welcome brother. And he said those words as he opened the door of the mosque to the Christchurch murderer. And then there are the 46 other individuals, there are the 46 other people um, who had histories, flaws, people who had dreams, people who had aspirations, people who had loves, people who had hates, people who had political passions, knowledges, strengths, weaknesses, 46 other individuals who had their breaths and futures stolen from them and I think it's really important for us to name the victims, it's important for us to name the victims because mourning is a political act. Who we're encouraged to mourn for and why is a political act. And overwhelmingly, the media, politicians and the ruling class, they manufacture grief for expediency. And in this instance, the naming of Muslim victims of fascist Islamophobia is a vital project. And I think we have to remember that these Muslims' lives were stolen from them by an Australian... And I am going to name Brenton Tarrant, because I think it is really important for us here in Australia to name this person as an individual, um, and it is important for us to understand where he came from, what made him the murderer that he was. The days after the massacre, um, Peter Dutton, you can all boo and sis, the appropriate times, uh, was on the radio arguing that the events of Christchurch shouldn't be politicised He said, um, it's an insult to those who are mourning uh, to turn this into a political event. But I would argue that Brenton Tarrant made the event political himself. He was a political person. He was a guy with a political message he wanted to send. And that's why he made a manifesto. That's why he did the live streaming. It's also important to push back against some of the other narratives that were emerging around the time, the narratives that suggested that uh, Brenton Tarrant did what he did because he was a, a lonely boy, he was a gamer, he spent too much online, you know, he spent too much time in the gym. I mean, there's lots of people who you should be suspicious of who spend too much time in the gym, but nonetheless... You know, I think none of these had anything much to do with the fact that Brenton Tarrant took a shotgun and went into a mosque to murder Muslims. Brenton Tarrant was hooked into a global far-right network and he very clearly saw himself, as other speakers have said tonight, as someone who was part of a far-right tradition. His manifesto was released uh, into the world of 8chan, the internet sewer, where many fascists live and where Tarrant resided for years. And it was this community, one that exists both online, un- undeniably it exists online, but it also exists offline. Um, and that fueled and mobilised and encouraged other fascist murderers of recent years. So Tarrant's final um, 8chan post, it is headed with the slogan, Screw Your Optics. And apparently this phrase appeared in the final post of Robert Bowers, who murdered 11 Jews at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, last October. Tarrant also celebrated the so-called work of Dylan Roof, who killed nine blacks in Charleston in 2015, and Norwegian Anders Breivik, who killed 69 young social democrats in 2011. But more than this, he also paid homage to a much longer fascist tradition, and so he also talked um, favourably about Oswald Mosley, who was the leader of the British Union of Fascists in the 1930s. So in other words, Brenton Tarrant has not come out of nowhere. He was born out of of a political culture that has developed and grown dramatically over the last few years. Now, obviously, the broader context here and the global dynamics and the intersection of all of these different far-right traditions and parties that other um, people on the panel today have described also helped make 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 Brenton Tarrant who he was today. But it's also uh, really key to talk about the dynamics in Australia. Tarrant was connected into the existing fascist grouplets that existed here. So, for instance, he was in contact with the United Patriots Front, which was formerly one of the key far-right organisations here in Melbourne. And a story that came out just a couple of weeks ago indicated that Tarrant had been defending the honour of the UPF online and threatening any of their critics um, with harassment, violence um, and brutality. More than all of that, however, Tarrant called his manifesto, as Dave said before, the great replacement um, towards a new society where we must march ever forwards. Um, and the ideas of the great replacement, of white genocide, and so on, again, haven't just dropped from the sky. They've been fostered by Australian politicians. And again, as people said, uh, Fraser Anning's uh, maiden speech, which, uh, you know, lauded the traditions of white Australia, spring to mind here. Pauline Hanson's motion to Parliament uh, to acknowledge not just that it's okay to be white, but um, to acknowledge the deplorable rise of anti-white racism and attacks on Western civilisation. I think the thing about Pauline Hanson's motion wasn't just that Pauline Hanson put a fairly, uh, you know, understandable motion for her, uh, you know, to Parliament. That's all to be completely expected from uh, the monstrous figure that she is. But the surprising thing about her motion in a way was the fact that it got such broad support. So the fact that it was initially initially um, only narrowly defeated 28 votes to 31 um, with many uh, Liberal backbenchers um, voting happily uh, for this motion. Um, and then Morrison uh, you know, was forced to kind of come out afterwards and declare uh, that it was just a bureaucratic bungle somehow, um, you know, which does obviously bring to mind um, the Nuremberg trials. Uh, so it isn't just minor kooks uh, or minor parties like Anning or Hansen the veiled and not-so-veiled comments from both Labor and Liberals about the danger of migration into Australia, the fact that Morrison had recently kind of made a few statements about how he was concerned and saddened by the fact that we couldn't simply have debates about migration and immigration in the same way that we have historically... But not just Morrison, I think everyone kind of suspects that he's a racist, um, not so far underneath his um, pallid skin. But um, more than that, the fact that um, two New South Wales Labor leaders in the last uh, you know, three or four months indeed have made comments about white flight and the problems of Chinese migration and in all of that, it does bring to mind the fact that white Australia was an absolute bipartisan project for decade after decade. Both the Labor and the Liberal Party um, backed it. Indeed, many respectable figures of the Australian establishment have acted as a beacon for fascists across the world. So, for instance, Anders Brevik cited uh, not just you know, other fascists of, of, of notable fascists of history but in his um, various blog posts he talked with great admiration about the historian Keith Winshuttle. Um, He also talked about his admiration for George Pell Um, and he declared John Howard to be one of the most sensible leaders uh, in the Western world. Um, And also, as Klaus mentioned before, the German far right infamously copied Australia's anti-refugee border posters for neo-Nazi material and increasingly Australia uh, features as the great white hope for many on uh, the international far right. So Milo Yiannopoulos, after having quite a bit of financial trouble, um, which has been a joy to watch, has to be said... Um, is reported to have actually been writing a book. And the title of this book, um, you know, whether or not it will ever actually appear, given Milo's um, track record so far, is called Australia, My Last Hope. Um, And when I heard that news, never have I been happier to wear um, the small badge that Socialist Alternative produced that said, un-Australian and proud, um, in the light of all of that.
3: And you're on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, and we're playing a rollicking speech given by Vasti Kenway at the Marxist 2019 fight for far right, uh, far, fight the far right, Britain, Germany, and USA, and this is Australia. So we'll hear the last part of it.
4: So, despite the kind of desperate attempts by Morrison uh, and figures like him to distance themselves from Tarrant. When you actually investigate the situation, the distance between the so-called mainstream and the far-right is actually not so far. The dominant narrative that exists in much of the liberal press is that there is a giant gulf uh, between the far-right and the mainstream, that fascism somehow uh, grows outside of the body politic. It operates, they argue, counter to mainstream bourgeois politics, and I would say that is completely false, both historically And today, so the interwar period of the last century, for instance, here in Australia, saw the growth of insurgent far right movements. And there was an excellent talk um, by Nick earlier today about the um, New Guard and the Old Guard and some of the fascist movements that existed here in the 1930s um, and 40s in Australia. But in 1932, there was 130,000 Australians under arms out of a population of just over six million. And this 130,000 trained and drilled with an assortment of fascist or far-right paramilitary organisations and they were readying themselves for an impending fascist takeover. And again, in the context of today, when we say Australian fascists, maybe Neil Erickson springs to mind or, um, you know, uh, Blair Cottrell, you know, the figures that you would actually find in these Organisations in these paramilitary organisations of the time were very respectable. There were solicitors, there were doctors, there were dentists, there always seemed to be dentists, there were (laughs) graziers and business owners, there were uh, many, many old boys from the grammar schools, there were hundreds of Rhodes Scholars amongst them all. Um, Basically, the doyens of the ruling and middle classes flocked to fascism in Australia. And during and immediately after the Second World War, uh, the Australian government had something of an open-door policy for certain far-right Europeans. Nazis and fascists were allowed into the country, and some were even put on the same ships to get over to this country as Jewish victims of the Holocaust. During the Cold War, fascist anti-communists were perceived as the more preferable migrants to communists. So Eastern European far-right groups were established all across the country... And some, like the fascist Croatian Eustacea, for example, became entwined in the upper echelons of the Liberal Party. So for those of you who are in New South Wales, the faction known as the Uglies um, had many members, even up until the mid-2000s, who were associated with the Eustacea. And in the 1970s, ASIO and the Liberal government were known to have had information about the Eustacea terrorist activities and have done nothing, and these and other groupings were often used as anti-communist and anti-leftist battering rams in the unions and often um, just for street thuggery and intimidation. So, for instance, um, during the upheavals of the anti-war, um, anti-Vietnam War period and the anti-apartheid movement in the 1960s and 70s, the Liberal Party were known to have got in contact with some of the actual SS, Nazi, um, swastika-wearing Nazis in New South Wales and asked them um, to act as security um, for their events. So those kind of relationships have often been part and parcel of the dynamics of the system. The establishment have often been part of the far-right and the far-right have often been part of the establishment... And today, in terms of public discourse, the dividing line between the far-right, respectable political discussion um, is getting thinner and thinner. After all, Australian fascists say they want to bring back concentration camps for Muslims, while the Australian government actually oversees concentration camps on Manus Island and Nauru. Now, after Christchurch, there was kind of a flurry of discussions of articles that um, talked about the relationship between the mainstream and the extreme um, far-right. And I would argue that while these discussions were often really welcome, um, they too much presented the problem as being one of the establishment just ignoring the far right. Um, a piece in the conversation I felt was pretty emblematic. It said, in this country, the problem lies with the broader Australian community that, accepts, uh, that ignores or accepts the presence of right-wing extremists in, the, in its midst and tolerates the increasingly Islamophobic and anti-immigrant discourse in Australia. I think that whole kind of argument uh, really lets them off the hook. I wouldn't say the issue is just that the mainstream ignores the far right. The issue is that they have created the context that builds the far right. It gives them the ammunition. The mainstream built the bonfire. They dried the wood, they chopped the trees, they got the kindling, they lit the match. They then watched it burn from a safe distance and held a press conference to talk with bowed heads and sad mouths about how awfully hot the fire is. But thankfully, um, there has always been a current in Australian society that has resisted on all fronts. Now, as other people on the panel have said, I think it's very crucial to take on government policies that create the environment, that breed the far right. And it's crucial that we also take on the mobilisations of the far right. The more the far right grow and are normalised, the more the nastiest, most racist, most sexist, most vile elements of the system are legitimised and given organising strength. So just as there has been a long tradition of the far right mobilising in this country, there's also been a long counter-tradition, a long anti-fascist tradition... And there were really significant mobilizations um, between the world wars um, during the 1960s and 70s. There were protests of thousands against the Nazis to stop them from getting a hold. So for instance, um, in 1972, the Nazi Party of Australia tried to hold uh, a meeting down on the Yarra Bank where there were regular meetings and demonstrations. People would get up on soapboxes and kind of talk about a whole variety of different issues. Um, And the Nazi Party decided that they would call um, one of these popular meetings down by the Yarra Banks. Uh, The left and Jewish organisations heard about this and over 3,000 counter-protesters showed up to disrupt their SS rally. And I've read some of the accounts of the time, and it's really, really moving, because at the forefront of these protests were um, Jews. And when you think about the 1960s and 70s, you don't necessarily click that many of the actual victims of Buchenwald and Auschwitz lived in Australia and were there. And so there are images of many of these victims of um, you know, Nazi atrocities overseas. And you see these photos of um, people holding up their arms and showing their concentration camp tattoos right um, into the faces of uh, these wannabe Nazis here in Australia. And when it was clear that the Nazi rally kind of had to disperse, um, many of these Jewish activists and left-wing activists moved their rally um, from the city and caught a train out to St. Albans, which is a highly migrant, working-class area. And they moved it out there because the Nazis had decided that they foolishly were going to try and set up a centre, a headquarters in St. Albans. And these hundreds of anti-fascist protesters marched from the train station to the house that they knew um, to be the Nazi party headquarters. And rather than just standing out the front of the house, um, they decided to absolutely ransack it. Uh, They ripped out the fridges, they ripped out the ovens, they ripped out the carpets, they ripped out all of the wardrobes. Um, they then discovered all of the Nazi paraphernalia um, underneath a floorboard, and they took it out into the front yard and burnt it all. <laughs> And they did that um, to the great applause and uh, support of many of the local working class residents, um, many of whom were migrants themselves who gathered around um, to cheer them on. So there's that kind of wonderful tradition. The tradition continues today with the really wonderful events um, in response to the Christchurch massacre. Um, the SNAP protests that happened right across the country that gathered thousands um, of people together to stand against uh, the kind of racism and violence that we saw across Christchurch. And people talked about the importance of making links with Muslim organisations. And certainly at some of the demonstrations, young Muslim women were at the forefront of these mobilisations. And as always seems to happen, when uh, the protests against the far right come out and Muslim organisations are encouraged to come and in these young Muslim women who have been vilified and told um, by the Australian state and the Australian government that they're marginal, they're not really part of the Australian body politic, that they're not very respectable, don't they know? Um, They're hijabs, they should take them off, they're so oppressed and so forth. The fact that these women get their voices on these demonstrations and on a number of them you see women kind of, you know, initially beginning out not so confident, by the end of the demonstrations, they're ripping the megaphones out of other people's hands. (laughs) They're at the forefront. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. And I think that that is part of the possibilities of mobilising against the far right. It's not just about pushing back the far right. It is also about grounding and giving confidence to people, oppressed people and people on the left to take a stand. So there's that tradition. There's also the other tradition. uh, There's the tradition of the egg boy, Um, uh, (laughs) Egg Boy is obviously a dead set champion um, and one of the wonderful things about the Egg Boy is that he was prepared to go outside polite society. He was prepared to go outside of respectability. He was prepared um, to take a stand and he galvanised popular opinion behind him. He put himself on the line and he is definitely someone to emulate, to have that kind of guts. But we do need to go beyond Egg Boy, and those are words that I never really imagined myself (laughs) saying at any point in my life, and if I'd ever dreamed of Egg Boy um, before, but (laughs) we we do. Um, We have to be really clear about what it is, about why we're doing it, Um, and we have to name our enemies. Obviously, our enemies include the far right, but they also include capitalism and the establishment. And unless we do that, I think we're going to be heading uh, headlong into a brick wall time and time again. And I think that's why it's important to understand the world and to be a socialist. In Socialist Alternative, we think it's absolutely vital to come to grips with the realities of the world around us, even if those realities are desperate, even if they're sad, even if they seem very confronting, like many of the stories from the people on the panels here today. We think it's better to know about these things to be able to confront them. We want to develop a systematic accounting for events and we don't think it's adequate to put everything down to chance or random events or human nature or a few bad apples. Capitalism is the problem and it has to be named. Socialists see the fight against fascism as part of a broader fight for a better world, one in which ordinary people control our lives and our destinies and are not divided by race or gender or religion or sexuality because the other side, they want a world of division and cultural sterility and they're prepared to use the most barbarous means to get there. The history of fascism is extreme and it is dangerous. It's a history of white hoods and lynch mobs and nooses and ethnic cleansing and fire. And it's this reality that means it's important to do more than just name the problem. We have to take an active stand and do something about it. Now is not the time to sit on the sidelines and wonder if, you know, there will be a better time in the future or to consider doing your washing, um, you know, instead of going to a protest or whatever it might be, because no injustice in this world has ever been overcome without a challenge without activity by ordinary working class people, by students, by people like you and me, without us, we would still be sitting in a world where women did not have the vote. Indigenous people would still be classified as flora and fauna in this country. Unions would still be illegal without the struggles of ordinary working class people organising and taking a stand. And part of the point of a conference like this over this weekend is that we can look at history, we can try and learn some of the lessons from it, we can use it as sucker and inspiration, and we can also see ourselves as part of a longer tradition of people who've continued um, and insisted upon taking a stand regardless of the consequences. And I've been reading quite a bit about some anti-fascist activists throughout history Um, And I was reading some really moving stories about Sophie Scholl, who was a young woman, um, a Christian, actually a Christian radical, um, in Germany during the Nazi uh, period. And uh, she distributed leaflets with her brother, she organised, she mobilised, and she was discovered. And when she was 21 years old, um, she was assassinated, she was uh, put before the guillotine um, for resisting the Nazis. And there are many different stories about Sophie Scholl's last words and they're both a bit apocryphal so I thought um, it would just be good to say what both of the different kind of stories are about her last words and I think they both um, tell us something. On one, as she was marching um, through what was by all accounts a fairly sunny afternoon um, to her death, um, one, she turned to the Nazi guard next to her and she said, your heads will fall as well. The second um, apocryphal line was also, and still extremely moving, was um, she was looking and uh, thinking about her friends, thinking about her comrades in the struggle, thinking about her brother. And she was looking around the world, looking beyond the uniforms of the Nazis, looking beyond her impending death. And uh, she said, the sun still shines. And I think that's also a really beautiful sentiment for a conference like this, that when we're confronted with the kind of vile racism and disgusting uh, Islamophobia and the impending growth of the far right across the world, that we can still look around us and look at our comrades next to us and say there is still some hope in the world and we have a hell of a lot to fight for.
0: This is Iri Lekker You're here on 3CR 85 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up One Talks.
5: Draw the line, let me welcome you close To all the folks who knew Obama, so the people of hopes Gave the money to suckers while well, our community still poor Withdrew the
1: troops but started another war and terrorising, creating the all crisis so
0: they- Yeah, so uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're just hearing uh, from Rebel Diaz, uh, who is uh, a Mapuche Artist from the US, um, and he's coming to do a tour in in Melbourne. Uh, So there's going to be quite a few events on, Uh, and two of them are on uh, Saturday, the May fourth at eight pm at Loop Bar, and then the following day at the Gasometer Hotel, Um, and both of those will be fundraising for um, the Latin American. Solidarity Network and Mapuche Aboriginal Struggles
3: yeah good show Professor
0: (laughs) there'll be other really good artists there as well like Race Rage and yeah
3: yeah it's going to be a rollicking time yes yes and who have we got next
0: yeah so we've got Anne
3: g'day Anne how are you oh hello Anne how are you
1: I'm well. How are you?
3: Good. Now, fair go for pensioners. This time we got it right, and <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to talk. You wanted to give us a, um, a reply to the budget from the perspective of fair go for pensioners. Do you want to kick off?
1: Yes, I would like to um, do that, and then also a little later, if there's time, just talk briefly about the conference we have planned for. Oh, the
3: we'd love ten, to hear about it
1: for the tenth of July. Um, just. Just quickly about Fair Go for pensioners. Um, we're a coalition. Um, we're independent, not for profit, and um, we look at social, advocating for social justice for pensioners. I don't know parents. if there's much
3: profit in uh, Fair <laughs> uh, There's much profit to be got from Fair Go.ing
1: <laughs> yeah. No, sadly there isn't. And and for the you know for those have... that that um, we are a part of, a part of our coalition. Um, all kinds of pensioners, single parents and their children, unemployed people, those people t- seeking affordable housing. You're right. Um, because, and I think because there's not a lot of profit to be made from us, we don't get a lot of attention... I mean, pro- from monetary
3: profit, shall yeah. we say.
1: Yeah, Yes, we have good social capital. Yes,
3: yeah, that's but
1: right. It, we don't get a lot of attention from government, I guess, because we're not um, a, a profit-making opportunity for them. So going into the budget from that... Uh, We feel very strongly that this budget, um, it is just business as usual. The things that have been touted as looking to assist people are really a con. And it's real content It is set up for a massive new cut to services that we already have. The tax cuts, for example, most of the benefit will go to those with the higher incomes, with perhaps a little spillover into middle level. It's certainly not – it's going to redistribute income upwards, as has been happening over uh, the many it's years. It's
3: quite interesting, and that uh, they even tried to refuse to give their paltry little uh, electricity assistance um, mm. to Newstart people. Oh, oh,
1: uh, exactly. I mean, that was just extraordinary. Exactly. <coughs> oh, excuse me. That's one of the things I had actually noted as part of that, that that $75 one-off payment, which in itself is insulting, Ridiculous. I believe, yeah. but that, that was not even initially going to go to new start recipients, certainly those who are doing it the hardest of all. Well, it certainly moment. just
3: said exactly how they see the world.
1: Yes, yeah. it did, it did. We can give these people $75 and, um, and that, that might keep them happy for a little while.
3: It's bizarre. It's, um,
1: yeah, absolutely bizarre. As I said, it's more than anything; it's an insult um, yep. because it's it's not it's not planned. It's any one-off payment of that kind just yeah shows exactly where the priorities lie.
3: You might even say it was contemptuous.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's probably it. a better, better word even than insulting, I agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and of course, we saw in this budget, again, the old bogey of the budget deficit being brought up, and really, and we. I think we've come to know that that just means it's an excuse for cuts, but it's not an excuse, it's it's an excuse for cuts for services. But it's never used as a reason to look at getting those who don't pay any tax, like the large multinational companies who don't pay any tax or who pay minimal tax, and who, if they just paid their fair share, if we were really concerned about a surplus and not having a deficit, that would be very easily taken
3: care of. It's also and a false. It's actually. Uh, I mean, I know you're not supposed to say that people are liars or cheats, but it it is a bit odd. Um, it was pointed out that uh, in the budget they were saying that uh, you know they're they're aiming for a smaller small sur, uh, surplus, which is going to yeah. which is below uh, point uh, below a percentage point. Mm. And that over 10 years, that that will mean that they're going to be able to get rid of our deficit. Now, actually, our deficit is 18%. Yes. So, actually, physically impossible.
1: That's right. That's right. The figures, even if we trusted... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just a bit odd. They don't add up. They, no. they they do not they clearly even the figures do not add up and we could have a bit a debate too in ter- economic terms of how why you know how bad is a, a deficit anyway anyway that
3: that's just beside the yeah. point
1: but yeah. that takes exactly which is this, which is where we're not starting from sadly but but again even their figures around that deficit and moving into surplus do, clearly do not add up and uh, and we've already seen, and again, it's, just an ex, and it's an excuse again, it's an excuse for cutting services and it's an excuse for further selling off our government assets and services t- so as private companies can make money out of that. It's and we're really actually awesome. paying... Companies we are contracting yeah. private providers to offer services, and that they are then making a profit from. And we yeah. are seeing that with many things, and with Centrelink, for example, and Serco being contracted to pro- now provide many services there. Oh, and yeah, and I,
0: I got offered one of those. It's from my new start, like, uh, the the provider, the yes. job service provider, said to me, oh. Yeah, what about this um, Centrelink call centre job? And I was like, Oh yeah! And he's like, Yeah, it's it's um, the, it's being run by Serco. And I yeah. was like, Oh my god!
3: And of <laughs> course, you know,
1: the, the, the Serco and me run having,
0: having been and worked on Nauru. I was just like, horrified. Oh. <laughs> yes, well,
1: they run out the uh, detention centres. Yes, yes. exactly. Uh, and also, prison and only, yeah. Yeah. the prison operators is the. Is the whole starting point of it so wrong? Those workers, like that job you were offered, mm. who are employed there, are side by side with others, and they are not having the same conditions or the same pay rate. Mm. And this is something that the the CPSU, which is the Commonwealth Union involved, in this is fighting very hard, um, you know, to to try and stop stop this or bring it back. Um, but no, that's just a very good example. Um, and also, we talked about the seventy-five dollar one-off, mm. and and of course, people on New Start, there's not going to be any increase to New Start. No. And everyone knows it is impossible to live on.
3: Well, that's the point, really, isn't it? Uh, they've created a system that is mm. a closed system that pushes uh, the most vulnerable down in order to keep the middle group in control. That's
1: Well, that's exactly right. And the most vulnerable, I mean, if we looked back even, say, 10, 15 years, it's never been easy to live on unemployment benefit, whatever it happened Mm. to be called at the day of the the
3: time. No, no, it takes quite strict... Strict uh, very, application. very really
1: difficult, but people could, when it, was more, when it was not quite, I mean, we haven't had an increase, what, 25 years. So if you're looking at that, people could, if they were very frugal and they perhaps lived in shared housing, they could manage to survive. That's not possible now with new Start.
3: No, it's, and, it's quite curious. And all... I'm not sure what people are supposed to do. And, no. and I know that uh, every time I've been to various things to do with uh, uh, policy makers, they keep talking mm. about the big mantra at the moment is affordable housing. Mm. But they don't actually tell you. I mean, I know what they're really saying because I've been to various uh, government things that mm. where they spell it out.
4: Mm. Their
3: plan is that there's going to be affordable housing within the private rental market. Mm. Exactly. That's and what just, they mean.
1: And yeah. if they look I mean, at
3: anything, roll around the floor laughing.
1: <laughs> and if they look at anything, it's talking about rental, Commonwealth rental assistance, and instead of actually the provision of housing, and we That's all right. know that that rental assistance again goes into the pockets of those of the landlords. That's yeah. right. Isn't, That's,
3: isn't that just um, government welfare to a particular of class? Of course it
1: is. Yeah. but welfare. To those kinds of people, is they are seen as deserving of that yes, welfare, yeah. whereas of course we've very much moved into who are the undeserving, yeah. as opposed to who are the deserving, and that's another real uh, concern in in what's happening currently in our community. I think, and and of course there's nothing about any change to the, if those who are fortunate enough to have a job, but nothing about any change to the uh, no wage growth.
3: That's exactly right. Yeah, and in like, fact, there's yeah. lots of money in poverty.
1: Yeah, yes. it's, it's
0: like coming off to that uh, that statement mm. again that Scott Morrison started his prime ministership with, that if you have a go, you'll get a oh. go. Yes. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but, but it's, it's like,
1: like we um, none of us even knew what did that remotely no, mean. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, because it has no meaning... And well, so, he did
3: prove to be a fairly uns. Well, there was this fantastic thing on Facebook, actually, and people, yes. know, where someone's got this picture of him looking really glib, saying, uh, "And I'm going to be, uh, after the election, this will be the the next job that I've been fired at."
1: <laughs> <laughs> fired from. Well, well, exactly. I mean, basically, we have the as the prime minister, a failed advertising executive. Mm. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's anyway. an
3: imponderable. It
1: is <laughs> a conundrum and an imponderable. <laughs> yes, and and so as and so really, well, we this budget is just more. I believe of, we believe is the same economically, economic irresponsibility. Handing more to the big investors has not translated into more investment into proper services, or in into wage growth for the, for those who really need it.
3: That's a very uh, interesting term, irresponsible, financially irresponsible.
1: Mm. Mm. Because it's always leveled at those who have the least and who actually are extremely responsible as to how they manage the little that they have. But but the word irresponsible is used about them, whereas you know we at at, um, Fair Go for pensioners certainly believe the irresponsibility sits uh, sits with the government, not with.
3: We've come to the, we're getting close to the end, but oh. we've, got, we've got plenty of time for Can you I... to tell us about the, uh, see, so, yeah, I, I listen to you, I listen to you. Tell us about the conference. The conference.
1: So we, um, we had a, a background paper released last year um, to, to working to, to, towards a civil and caring society. So we're looking at a conference July the 10th, Wednesday the 10th of July, called Up in the Air. And it's fair go for all, going, going, dot, dot, question mark. (laughs) So Mm. we get back to that fair go myth. And as we are saying, our democratic system's in trouble with more public welfare services privatised and costly and a lack of political leadership. So what we want to do at the conference, it's very much grassroots, it's free. We want everyone who can to come and discuss what's gone wrong what sort of services in society we want and how we can get there. And it's at the Coburg Greek Orthodox Church Community Hall, Wednesday, 10th of July, from 9am until 4pm.
3: And is that the one that's uh, at the end of uh, Sydney Road, near Sydney Road and Bell Street?
1: Yes, you, you literally get off at the station yeah, and right. you walk across for a few minutes. Or if you prefer the tram, you just you walk for a few minutes. You literally walk
3: across direction. the
1: road. You do. Yeah, yes. it's just so it's up very, from the town hall. It's very accessible. That's mm. um, another reason that we've chosen to to have the conference there. It's very accessible. It, it's a very it's a good venue, and as we said, it's free. Numbers are limited, so we would ask people to contact us and. Um, register um, you can contact um, f- you can register for the conference at events Victoria at gmail.com or say that again, um,
3: events Fairgo.
1: events and just the initial events fgfp victoria at gmail.com okay okay, good and we really, as we said, it's free. We really want it to be a grassroots conference. So if anyone out there is listening and they might think, oh, I don't, I haven't had an opportunity to go to a conference for a while. I'm not sure about it or how I would get there. As we said, train or tram to Coburg. It's, it's very easy and it's free. There's lots of buses that go and around that area as well. too. Yep. Yes. and will there be food provided? Oh yes, there will be morning and afternoon tea and lunch. Good. And do people need to pay for that? No. Oh it's well, the there you go. Of the Free food. Woo. And, and we can. And we're very happy to say that uh, Rob Watts, who's professor of social policy with RMIT uh, Victoria the University, is the keynote speaker.
3: Oh, and he's great. He's a great he is speaker. excellent.
1: Um, if you want somebody to put into context and understandable about neoliberal theory and what we can do to combat that and have come up with alternatives, he's an excellent
3: person for that. Yeah, yeah, great. Listen, I, mm. I, I mean, I've been to several of his things, yes. and he's a, a great little mind. That one.
1: Oh, a great, an amazing mind. <laughs>
3: <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, thanks very much, Anne, for having a no yarn with us. Thank you. Yes. We did all the things we had to do. We
1: did. Thank you for giving um Fairgo for Pensioners that opportunity.
3: No, no worries. <laughs> okay. You're on Bye. Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca, and uh, we're almost ready to give you the thing that everybody actually wants waits to wait. Waits for. But we might play a track.
0: Okay. Uh, from
3: here. Yeah, yeah. This is a, a CD that someone sent me. It's uh, thanks very much, Stephen. And this is uh, aerobics track.
1: 1.8 million people surrounded on all sides, refugees since 48 since 67 occupied. The only reason they're not starving is down to the UN. Most have never left there, stuck in the lion's den, the most crowded place on earth, and there they'll stay. They can't visit cousins a half hour's drive away. Drones overhead constantly. Who will die tomorrow? A daily mystery in Gaza. moved out, fighter jets moved
5: A weak Solidarity Bricky Team listener, when Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition appeared to be bending over backwards to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory as the country generally, apart from the Canberra Press Gallery, which finds boredom and predictability, accusation and counter-accusation the stuff of hysterical excitement, as the rest of the country generally descends into autumnal election hibernation hibernation for most, hibernation for the press gallery. It took but Days of these weeks of the battle of ideas for the battle of ideas to reach the dizzy heights my word aren't we into coining cliches this morning, the dizzy heights of little Billy and caring business class party big supremo scuttled them more last son, accusing each other of lying, indeed each telling us we can't believe a word the other is saying when we know we can't believe a word either is saying, but one man we can believe, the man who will receive the overwhelming majority of women's votes because he is so devoted to making women's lives better. And how do I know? Because he told me some weeks ago, a pamphlet turned up among my junk mail, which led me to reassess my attitude to mining part-time Polly Clive Gina, because apparently before the electors threw him out, he devoted his life to promoting legislation, which has made women's lives so meaningful, informing me that almost every benefit women enjoy in Troubler was he is down to Clive. And obviously all the men in Clive's almost eponymous party are also dedicated little feminists, because the other day this ad appeared telling us who to vote for, the 17 candidates running for party Parmigina in Victoria. And for a man so dedicated to promoting women, obviously the 15 men of the 17 must be even greater advocates for women than women themselves. From that home of female equality, Saudi Arabia, two more young women fled the country two weeks ago, hoping to make it to Troubluwazi. And the report I read said they had now moved to a country that has accepted them without naming the country. But we can be sure of one thing. We know which country it isn't. Okay, we mightn't accept people fleeing persecution and repression, but my goodness, we respect women as long as they stay put back home in homes, true blue Aussie, brave young men and women in uniform, life of the party, cream of true blue Aussie youth, trained killers bomb. As our trained killers had this new policy, pilots should think twice before bombing bridges because that bridge may be the only feasible route for women to collect water and firewood. This led to a compassionate response from Bruce Relf. Real name, because no one's heard of him. Bruce, New South Wales troubler was peacekeeper and peacemaker Veterans Association supremo, true lovers of peace, who accused the top brass who are making the buck stop with the pilot. This is going to make the pilot hesitate, afraid he might be charged with war crimes, and that puts his life in danger. The enemy will not be hesitating to shoot him down. Bruce strongly supported by a, quote, ex-soldier, Bernard Gaynor, wherever, wherever they dragged him up from, who made a lot of sense. It seems the politically correct agenda is yet to reach peak insanity inside defence. Pilots are now required to consider feminist theory before dropping bombs. Gender advisors are now deployed on operations. We need our defence force to train combat warriors, not social justice warriors. Good point. If women are hanging around where the bombs fall, it's their own bloody fault. Just to clarify the language, operations means going out to kill people in their country. And in case you need convincing, he must be elaborating, I hear you say, promise they were direct quotes. The peacekeepers and peacemakers obviously believe peace must be accompanied by slaughter and destruction. Any wonder poor Bruce feels agitated. But can I just throw one thought into the equation? The women and the pilots would all be safe if we didn't go around the world bombing and invading countries the US of the UN of the US of the world doesn't like. But Bruce and Bernard know that would be the antithesis of peace. Back to Clive. Not only is he devoted to improving the lot of women, he also wants to pay those workers from his failed nickel mine to whom he owes millions after he nickeled off. Even though he now says he didn't sack the workers or owe them millions. It was the liquidator. Wonder if he'll repay the public purse which picked up the bill for the workers' entitlements or part thereof. He wants to make up the difference, which is still millions, because Townsville, where the workers lived, is going through hard times. His logic obviously being there's no obligation to pay workers unless their city is hit with a typhoon especially when there's the public purse to do it for you. Oh, and Clive made it clear several times that the election had absolutely nothing to do with his decision, as if we'd think it did. But there are a few little details he has to sort out before he can pay up. He can't just give them a bit of what he owes them. And we can be sure he'll do his best to sort those details out before the election. Because if he can't, I'm not wrapped in the workers' chances. Now the minor parties. Sunday, Scuddle Them shared his wisdom with young people. Nothing to do with polls showing youth are not voting for the caring business class lot big time. Shared his wisdom, telling them their future lay in Christian compassion and fiscal discipline. Beautiful sentiments and invaluable advice. Uh, love Thy Neighbour, scuttle Them. Absolutely, unless thy neighbour is a no proper papers queue jumping illegal boat person who must be locked up for life, but with Christian compassion, a given, scuttle them, a given, Oh yes, yes, it is obvious, or an evil union member, or or any worker for that matter, or anyone who doesn't vote for me, Uh, that doesn't leave too many neighbours to love. But they are neighbours I love having as neighbours. And don't forget the dear baby Jesus died yesterday so those neighbours could vote for me and to save your miserable soul. In that, Jesus and I have something in common. Alike, I'm dying to win the election. And this week's definition of fake, the crowd, including the usual suspect rows of pollies at little Billy's rallies, whose faces light up, laughing and bubbling with excitement, who look like seeing little Billy is the most exciting thing in the whole world, fake, fake, fake. Fake, visual hypocrisy, confected rubbish. No one, no one could be excited at the sight of little Billy. I wouldn't be surprised if even he eschews the mirror in the morning and the visual hypocrisy will be even more insincere if little billy has other weeks like this one trying to snatch defeat from perhaps i'm being unfair singling out little billy they all do it someone whose back they were eyeing off with a long knife in hand and clandestinely denouncing yesterday they cheer and applaud as the world's savior today Zion had the choice of saviours this week, much to the excitement of the Palestinian non-people on whose land the election was taking place. The choice of long-term Supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, and former number one trained killer Benny Glantz-Wright, whose expertise at trained killing and slaughter and destruction the non-people know full well. Uh, so what was the choice? It was a choice between annexing even more land in greater and ever-expanding Zion and ensuring the non-people have no home, or not annexing even more land in greater and ever-expanding Zion in the immediate and ensuring the non-people have no home. The people chose the former. The really encouraging thing is Benny, whom we protested against a couple of years ago when he was brought here by the extreme Zionist lobby, was seen as the moderate candidate and the still big Supremo Benjamin's coalition partners in government are all seen as being on his right. Great news for the non-people terrorists who regularly threaten Zion by protesting on the border of and gazing nostalgically through the border wall into their country, some of whose youth and children throw stones at the poor zion train killers protecting Zion from this terrorism. When U.S. of Big Supremo Donald or the Poor sees the border wall through which the anti-terrorist trained killers shoot the land-grabbing terrorists, he must be greed with envy. Any wonder he so admires Zion. No doubt he'll recognise the West Bank and then Gaza as sovereign Zion Territory and threaten retaliation against any country that doesn't follow suit, telling us this will benefit the peace process. <laughs> If there's no land for the non-people to have a country, there's no need for a peace process. Very good. Peace. The best peace ever. Finally, as Notre Dame resembles the fires of hell, as Clive washes his hands of his responsibility to workers, as scuttle them and the Minister for Keeping Us Secure, Constable Peter Duffer, wash their hands of any responsibility for no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people, as scuttle them and the gang who know there is no such thing as climate change wash their hands of any responsibility for the changing climate that isn't changing, as little Billy washes his hands of any responsibility for no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people or for stuffing up his lines, blaming it on the media for asking him difficult questions like what's your policy, as caring employers wash their hands for any caring employer problems which are all created by evil unions and irresponsible elements claiming class warfare class envy when there is no such thing as class struggle except in the eyes of the strugglers when they all wash their hands of inequality and exploitation knowing the fault lies with the unequal and exploited it's spiritually uplifting to see them all getting into the spirit of the season of the dear baby jesus perhaps it's appropriate that the week kicks off with palm sunday meaning they can all palm off their responsibilities good morning
3: Hi. Hi, we're from Raybrook College and you're listening to Free cr Community Radio on 8.55am. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd put in a different lot of kids yeah, for good. the day. <laughs> you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don.
2: G'day, Annie. Hi, Rebecca. And g'day to all your listeners.
3: And what's on your mind?
2: Well, I think we, uh, we always have a talk about the Change the Rules campaign and the important issues that uh, relate and swirl around that campaign. Did you hear uh, my show this morning? from the point of view of the workers.
3: Hey, did you hear um, Rebecca's show, The Stick Together? Have you listened to it?
2: Uh, earlier in the week? Yes, I have. Wasn't it terrific? I thought it was marvellous. <laughs> I, I think it was marvellous. And... Um, I think I might have mentioned to you also, I thought the program the week before that dealt with the chemical fires in Broadmeadows Mm. and other suburbs in that area was outstanding uh, as well. Plastic uh, flowers.
3: uh, Plastic flowers. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, no, someone was saying that uh, in Faulkner that they lived across the road from their factory that made Agent Orange, and oh. that they couldn't grow anything uh, and it got so bad that they stuck plastic flowers in their garden. And the garden. And the government said, oh, nothing wrong here, nothing to see here. Uh,
2: <laughs> really yeah. Anyway, by the by. Yeah. So uh, what I thought we should discuss today is, uh, is a little bit f- further into you know, connecting the present to the future as far as the Change the Rules campaign is concerned. And to imagine the prospects, uh, if, uh, if Labor does indeed uh, win government, which we, of course, all, uh, we all want this government thrown out. And uh, we, we, we inevitably, I think, are going, you know, if that happens, of course, we're going to have a Labor government.
3: Well, because that's the majority, yeah. yeah.
2: Yes, perhaps in some sort of relationship with the Greens, which I have to think would be healthy. But that is just perhaps a separate discussion. But the main thing that uh, the reason for doing this is that I think what is exciting about the Change the Rules campaign over its last couple of years is that there are thousands of new activists becoming involved, many of them young people, and some of them have come into the Change the Rules campaigns out of other big union experiences, particularly in Victoria, uh, perhaps more so uh, than the other states. And... uh, And therefore, it's important to look at, well, where might things go right and wrong in the future?
3: Right. Yep. Uh,
2: And so uh, if we think back to uh, 2005, 2007, there was an outstanding, there were two big campaigns that in that period led to the defeat of the then Liberal National Party government led by John Howard. And in fact, booted him out of his own seat in Benning Long, which was
3: That's right.
2: to be a, that was a big campaign. And I, I,
3: I've got a, yeah, I've got a story about that. I I, I was down uh, in Warrnambool at that time, and I remember going to. I didn't go to the actual uh, folk festival at Port Ferry, but I was in the environs, and I wore um, change changed the uh, you know the work choices T-shirt that they put, up, uh, you know the unions put out. Yes. And I walked through the streets on purpose, all yeah. around gauging people's reactions. And yeah. there was this silent sort of wave of recognition yes. uh, to the T-shirt. There were, it was palpable people's yes. uh, desire to uh, extinguish, and they're all rather polite people, you know, to extinguish work choices.
2: Well, the thing that happens then that we must not allow to happen again is that after Labor uh, won government, two things happened. Firstly, there was an economic recession. And secondly, there was a dampening and, in fact, a winding back and almost a killing off of the grassroots right, uh, 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 Your Rights at Work campaign. That's right. And the important thing about the Your Rights at Work campaign, which is somewhat different to the current Change the Rules campaign, is that it started without official union support. In other words...
3: It was uh, grassroots.
2: At the grassroots level, yeah. the communities, a community labour organisations were formed informally And they started to make an impact that uh, resounded beyond their own communities into the media. And eventually more and more unions began to encourage and develop them and back them up. And eventually the ACTU gave some real aunt to the campaign through its fundraising and its ability to do very effective TV and radio advertising. Now And then, of course, there was the formalisation of that with the appointment of uh, campaign coordinators in key electorates. Now, what we, what we have to remember about that campaign is that a huge strategic mistake was made by the then leadership of unions because they basically put that grassroots campaign away after Labor was elected,
3: yeah, that's right. Mm, yeah. yeah, but then they then the next um, ACTU conference, which they had in Melbourne following that, which is what is leading up to what we're getting now. They passed a motion because I was actually there, where they decide where they said. That the a c t u is going to be a campaigning organization a bit trotskyist really, a permanent revolution type notion that uh you, you can't just put your your gear away and say you've won, you've just got to keep doing it
2: mm. yes, except they didn't,
3: yeah, that's right, <laughs> but anyway, they put up this motion, yeah, you know, I just thought that was curious yes. at the time,
2: yes, in fact anybody and so and then we had the fair Work act as yeah. You know with its broken rules, many of which reproduced the broken rules that was in what we had fought against in the All Rights at Work campaign. That's right. But the second big thing that happened was, of course, that there was a global financial crisis. And uh, I'm not going to go into an argument about to what extent it was a financial crisis or a broader economic crisis, but it, it was nevertheless a crisis
0: it was nuts. And Labor
2: did a very, very, very interesting thing. It engaged immediately before the crisis developed too much momentum in Australia in what was actually a very mild uh, sort of pump price. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. They, 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 they um, infused funds to the lowest, to the lowest uh, uh, most uh, vulnerable people who then, of course, used it immediately.
2: Yeah, and they found the resources to do that. Yeah, and therefore they smart considerably move. reduced the impact of that.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And market. and so for the first time, they proved that trickle down effect is useless, mm. but trickle up effect is perfect.
2: Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> no, well, sorry, I'm being a bit flippant. <laughs> and the reason the reason is this is that is that we had what has been described as a recovery in the system from about 2010 onwards, thereabouts, both globally and in Australia, although the situation was not as desperate in Australia as elsewhere. Uh, But the recovery uh, was based upon wage stagnation and and an increase in inequality
3: yeah now, the interesting other
2: factor yeah. that fits into all of this. That's that is significant for the change the rules campaign in the future. yep, is that back then, as is now, is that we had ecological crisis primarily expressed through climate change. yeah, yeah, and this time we are in a ecological crisis of even greater impact.
3: Oh no, it's a catastrophe we we're, we're teetering on so. catastrophe.
2: We have ten years or so, so. Yeah. Is there going to be another crisis?
3: Well, bound to be.
2: That Labour wins government, it is highly likely that they will inherit another recession within the first twelve months or so.
3: So, so what you're really saying is it, it, the Liberals, par for course in Australia, what happens is that the Liberals grind everybody into the ground mm. and then leave every leave the disaster for someone else to fix
2: up. This and is a common... And yeah, blame it on them. And spend
3: it's, the next four yes. years saying, it's your fault, it's yeah. your fault, it's your fault.
2: Well, I think that that's the um, message that, in fact, Morrison is trying to develop. Mm. Yeah, well, he wants to claim he wants we can to
3: watch claim his brain work.
2: His, uh, his government's responsibility for everything that he <laughs> can say or argue is going right, but he wants to be able to say... That and, and the phrase that he's using is global headwinds. What? Global headwinds. God, now, what a that, jerk. That expression he is trying to morph that into being able to say that Labour will would make would not be able to handle those headwinds.
3: Oh, so for all the um the what is it, those windsurfers out there <laughs>
2: dickhead. So so this why is this so relevant to the Change the Rules campaign? Tell well, us. Traditionally, you see what the Change the Rules campaign is driving towards is the defeat of wage stagnation. Mm. And that means that means serious changes yeah. to the Fair Work Act, not tinkering. And when recessions come along, including when Labor is in government the union movement's history is that it has retreated. Mm. And
3: has well there's a common over. belief that you know unless you know we all buckle down then uh, everything the ship will fall yeah. apart. Mm. And so the working class as a general rule do work together, right? They yes. see they have an overview of potential disaster. Because you know, individually and within families, uh, things have fallen yeah. apart, and they they don't have a lot of fat to play with.
2: And if you if you have an economy that is rests upon and depends upon wage stagnation, and which is deeply connected to a big proportion of the workforce in precarious work, yes, mm-hmm. then along comes a recession. The pressure on the working class and its leadership in campaigns like Change the Rules is enormous to retreat. But that, in this situation, would be more than usually dangerous because, firstly, economic economic inequality is going to escalate at levels that we have not experienced for decades Mm. And secondly, the momentum to do the things necessary to reverse climate change before the turning point of 2030 falls apart. And that would be disastrous for the 90% globally as well as in Australia. So the Change the Rules campaign must be alert to how it prepares for this situation.
3: So, so there's more at stake. What you're saying? Are you tying uh, the uh, the poorest state of uh, the economy for working class people with the poorest state of the climate? Yes, the two.
2: The, the, there is a relationship. Uh, what's going on? Uh, the, nature is a part of the economy. All, I mean, all the reproduction
3: of our society. Well, capitalism true, is based food, on, um, clothing, yeah, yeah, water, but...
2: It but, depends upon nature. Yeah, yeah, but uh, capitalism yeah. requires
3: the destruction of nature.
2: It, well, it does require, although you can make a profit out of nurturing nature as well. As well, others. you can,
3: but uh, obviously capitalists, as a general rule, don't yes. have that in mind. They just yes. want an easy buck. Yeah.
2: Yes, that's the, gen- that's the overall trend and so by understanding this the change the rules campaign for its own sake but also in a broader sense must work very hard to for on its strategy for after the election
0: yeah can i just break if in
2: labor or a labor greens alliance is the result of the election
0: yeah well i i some people, um, in some of the meetings that I've been in, they were really talking about this. It was a, um, yeah, quite a while ago, but at the beginning of the change the rules campaign, they were, they were already flagging this as, you know, um, let's try to make sure that the change the rules campaign doesn't just become a let's elect Labour uh campaign and then afterwards it'll just, yeah, as you say, kinda capitulate.
2: There will be, I think there will be union leaders who will will want to put away the campaign. Mm. That, that's our history. That, that there will be this tension about between those who... There will be three, if you like, three forces operating. Those who want to put the campaign away and leave it to Labor to solve all problems.
3: Yeah, yeah well, good luck with leave that. Leave it to
2: the Parliamentary <laughs> Labor Party. There will be those who will recognise what we're now discussing, which is that it is critical that the campaign continue. And then there will be those who will not be quite sure and could go either direction. Well yeah,
3: but well, there's always
2: yeah the pressure from below to maintain the campaign in the face in the face of the the, 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 the threat to the campaign posed by an economic downturn that could be worse, it could be a recession and it could be a full-blown crisis in a broader sense. Yeah,
3: they, but it's interesting it's that you not should...
2: not easy for a change-the-rules type campaign to maintain its demands and its determination and its mobilisation mobilization when a recession hits, but yeah. that is what must happen this time.
3: Now, well, people need to broaden the question then, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the Kimberly clark um, factory closure, uh, mooted factory closure. That should flag to people, working-class people who are in a a difficult, really tight situation, that um, these kind of companies and the world that they're in have no loyalty, no local loyalties at all. Humans do, but corporations don't. And so, therefore, the battle is a much bigger battle then it's class warfare, effectively.
2: Yes, it's class warfare, and that can be expressed in lots of ways. And I think I think the Kimberley-Clark-Huggies uh, dispute as it's evolving does raise questions about what our strategy ought to be. Um, why should we accept that any company, whether it's a foreign company, an Australian transnational or just an Australian national company has any right to just without any challenge be able to close down an operation what a and then therefore what a, a, a profitable one that we would put forward
3: I mean it's it wasn't failing it was a profitable one
2: it was a profitable one with recent new investment yeah mm. so recent new investment had not saved those 220 odd jobs which is an important lesson for everybody
3: yeah and very
2: a very important painful one for the workers who are immediately involved.
3: So, you know, when people are making that decision about their own personal safety, you know, their family safety, uh, which you know, all these things are, you know, important. Uh, and they're, they're, what people have to realise is that there are broader questions and that working together to push the this battle forward is actually required for overall safety. Yes.
2: For everybody's for everybody's potential development to, to proceed. Mm-hmm. So uh, so what, what 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 How might the ninety percent address this scenario of a new Labor government, a modestly reforming Labor government, uh, perhaps having to operate with uh, in some sort of relationship with the Greens? Uh, how should the 90%, above all, the, the 90% needs the change the rules campaign to maintain and develop a mindful militancy? And then secondly, the, what is needed is the development of what I will call, for lack of a better word at the moment, or a better phrase at the moment, the development of the people's economic and political program in which all the various campaigns that are dealing with the repression and the exploitation that's going on at the moment can coalesce their demands into a coherent program. And there are examples of this, as I think I've mentioned before, in our history. I've got just sitting in front of me a couple of pages from a document back in 1978 that described... Uh, The basic ideas behind a people's economic program, as it was called at the time, and that called for all of the organisations of the people to help flesh it out. Um, And then even before that, there was a thing called the people's budget. Uh, And that contained an alternative budget to the type of budget that we had just seen.
3: Oh, that's fantastic. So, and all the things that people actually care about. Because as it it was pointed out at a talk that I went to recently, uh, that um, actually politicians are less interested in what people care about and more interested in how they can fudge it so that it can look like uh, all the things they're interested in aren't impinging too much on what people want.
2: Well, I, I think... We can't generalise about politicians to that extent because I think there are some that would like to do something better. Oh well, of course, and and we must learn how to work with those people. Yes, Yes. and and control. You're
3: completely correct.
2: Yeah, So uh, the uh, the thing is that you see, I was listening and I was getting very poor internet reception at the time, but I was listening to your fair go. Uh, For pensioners, uh, uh, discussion, and I couldn't pick up all of it because of breakdown in the internet streaming, but that is exactly the sort of thing that we need a lot more of. Mm. That that try that that discussion was all about trying to integrate, if you like, and bring together the the concept of the people's alternative. And that can then be the basis for keeping the pressure on a later government that would want to retreat. Yep. Because it is, it does actually really produce and rescue capitalism from its problems mm. it, 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 to push it further.
3: It's a bit so Chavez, really, isn't it? Chavista.
2: Well, it's, I don't think we should copy that, but <laughs> they're the concepts.
0: Can I just I point time out time. another yeah. example? Um, yeah, I, I feel like maybe uh, I know this is just a Victorian uh, thing, but the uh, Victorian uh, trades hall coming out and saying that they support the Jaffrung embassy um, and putting out a statement that says they will support them uh, in the face of the Andrews. Labor government trying to destroy those um, trees up near Ararat. That's kind of another way where the, um, or example where the Labor movement is kind of standing up to the Labor Party yep. um, and saying, yeah, this is what we value.
2: Yes. The, the, um, uh, that is another example of, there are actually hundreds of campaigns like that around the country. Mm. But as I've said before, their future will be te- depend upon the extent to which they move out of working in a silo
0: mm.
2: into a common program. And yep. that's where the meeting that's being convened by the pensioners' organisation is is an important step. Now, Australian unions once did that sort of stuff. Not these days.
3: We, we, quite- we'll have to finish because we've come to the end of the program, but... Um, And my argument in conclusion
2: then is that the Change the Rules campaign needs this Mm. for its future if Labor wins because almost inevitably there will be pressure on it to shut down reinforced by both economic recession and uh, the false sense of priorities around climate change.
3: Okay, thanks, Don. That's very, really...
2: Uh... I don't think I, I'm sorry, I don't think I expressed that very well about no. you, the two are, The two are interrelated.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah,
2: I'm, yeah. I'm concerned about integrating and combining those so that the Change the Rules campaign can actually maintain itself and go further than Labor wants to go at the moment. Yeah, mm, be realistic
3: yeah, yeah. and sustainable.
2: Yeah. Yes. Thank you. All the best to everybody. I hope we can see good things come out of that conference and I hope there's many yeah. more of it.
3: Yeah, good on you. Thanks, Don. Oh. And yeah, we've come to the end of the programme. It's uh we're gonna go off again to the Marxist conference for a while and uh hopefully you enjoy the rest of your weekend. We're gonna play another song from Stephen's uh uh Robux yes. C D David Robix CD. Um, I'm sure you can actually get this CD online if you go to uh, look up uh, David Robix's uh, uh, online um, connection.
0: Yep. And can I just do a quick uh, yeah, go plug of uh there's a film screening of No Fire Zone, which is uh, a film that which helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia in their thousands uh, and why it's not safe for them to return. Um, this is going to be on the 4th of May at the RMIT Cinema Theatre. Um, So if you want to find out more information, there's a Facebook event page. So just search No Fire Zone Screening. It's a a free um, screening and there'll be discussion afterwards. And also this week, uh, there will be a slow flow dinner, uh, which will be hosted by uh, the West Papuan community. And that's raising money for the ongoing... Uh, situation of the people in the highlands in Duga, who have uh, been under well the whole the whole of West Papua is under occupation, but uh, more intense occupation uh, from the Indonesian military up there in recent times. So that money will
3: go towards them. Adiós, amigo.
1: Cotter Adnan grew up near Janine City. You could say he was a product of his time. Ever since he was a kid, he'd get arrested,
4: though he was never charged with any crime. Spending half his life in prison, a life lived like so many of his friends.
1: Arbitrary and indefinite detention, never knowing if your jail time would end.